Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is March 27th of 2014. I'm just going so fast, I can't keep track of it anymore. Um, tonight, our guest is Dr. Lance Dotis. He will be talking about his new book, The Sober Truth, uh, debunking the bad science behind the 12-step programs in the rehab industry. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting alcohol altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It is available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Our guest, Dr. Lance Dotis, is with us right now. I'm going to bring him on. Hello, Dan. Hello, Lance. How are you doing this evening? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, you've been on before. We talked about your other book, Breaking Addiction and the Heart of Addiction. Um, I was having drinks with Stanton Peel and Sheila Vacaria the other night, and Stanton said, uh, tell Lance hello on the show, uh, that he's doing great work. He's making great steps to uh, enlighten the public. So I, I promise That's to pass that on. Uh, so, Thank you. Yeah, Stanton's really he's rooting for you, too. So let's start talking a little bit about the book. And, you know, the common perception is that the 12 steps are the only thing that works and what is wrong with this common perception? Where does it come from? Well, first, what's wrong with it? Well, what's wrong with it is that it's completely wrong. Uh, the fact is that there have been lots and lots of studies of AA's effectiveness now over many, many years. And there are two things that people should know. The first is that most of the studies uh, are really terribly run. And uh, in 2006, one of the most prestigious scientific organizations in the world reviewed 40 years of AA studies and concluded that there was simply no evidence that AA was effective at all. Um, we, in our book, looked at those studies, but then we kept going and we looked at some uh, more recent studies as well. And in particular, we looked at studies that uh, claimed to support AA. And what we found is that... Uh, the success rate of AA is between 5 and 10%. That means that only about 1 in 15 people who go to AA meetings become sober members. So it's nice for those people who are doing well, and, of course, somebody who is doing well should continue. But the, it's a public health disaster because we send everybody to AA, doctors, psychologists. People just send people to AA because of what you said, that they think it's the right thing to do. In fact, it's the wrong thing to do 90% of the time. And it's not only that 90% of the time people don't get better, it's that those 90% are being harmed. Why they're being harmed is uh, there are a couple of reasons, One, the least of which is that they're wasting time. They're going to a treatment that isn't going to help them. But worse than that, um, AA, in AA's point of view, is never wrong. AA is always right. You are wrong if you can't make use of it. And that's what they tell you. They say, if you're not doing well in AA, you're not working the program hard enough. Go to more meetings. Be more prayerful. Whatever they say, it's you that is failing. And 
the public buys this, and it's extremely destructive. It's depressing. It's discouraging. And uh, the same thing applies to the rehabilitation industry in this country, which is almost 100% 12-step oriented. And so, and they also are never wrong. You know, if you think about the uh, the famous people, the celebrities who go in and out of those Malibu rehabs, uh, they go in and, and fail and come out, go in and fail, uh, and fail and go back in 10, 12 times. And everybody in the country blames them. Everyone says, these people, what's wrong with them there? They don't stick with the with the program. Nobody says what they should say, which is the treatment is no good. That's why they're not getting better. We blame the patients, and that's very wrong, and it's very bad for them. So, you know, what's wrong with the statement AA is, is the best treatment? AA has probably the worst success rate in all of medicine, and uh, it's again, it's it's the problem is is, is that we we don't know that. And we need to know that, otherwise we have this public health disaster. Well, the, the general public seems to believe, and they are told by the media, and particularly they're told by rehab programs who are advertising their stuff on the, the Internet and everywhere, they believe that people with addictions, addiction is chronic, progressive, it is 100% results in death unless it is treated. But is that true? Does every addict die without treatment? Well, not only is that not true, but it turns out that there is there are some studies on the spontaneous remission rate in alcoholism, and they show that uh, a certain percent, maybe 5 to 10 percent of people, spontaneously stop drinking without any treatment at all, which is an interesting statistic because it means about the same number of people get well with no treatment as do in AA. So... Um, some of the AA success may actually be due to this spontaneous remission rate. Um, it certainly is not true that you have to, you know, that, that untreated you, you're going to die of addiction, and it's obviously not true that you have to go to AA to get good treatment. And that's uh, like that's 5% per year, isn't it? Because uh, when we look at, what was it, NISARC, they showed us like 70, over 25 years, that 75% of people were recovered. Who, who told you that? NISARG, National Epidemiological Study of Alcohol-Related Conditions. And when was that study allegedly done? Um, that was completed in 2000, and uh, the, some of the results were published in, uh, in 2010 when they did the data analysis. Well, um, did, I, did I just mention the Cochrane Collaboration? I did. Yeah. The, this, the group, yeah. So I believe the Cochrane Collaboration more than I believe the others. The problem is if you're, anybody who looks at this uh, and tries to draw a conclusion is relying on what data is available. And the data is simply unreliable. That's why the Cochrane Collaboration found, after studying 40 years of studies, that there was simply no evidence that AA was effective. There's lots of data out there. And lots of people make claims, especially the rehab people. Um, they are, they're always claiming a 90% success rate, but there's no data to back that up. The data that there is, and this is part of why we wrote the book, the data is simply not reliable. And what the Cochrane people did was they said, we're going to throw out all the studies that are no good, the studies that aren't controlled, the studies that have poor methodology, the studies where there's bias. We're going to throw them all out. And they were left with a very small number of studies that they said were reliable. And if you look at those studies, it just 
shows what we said. It shows no, no effectiveness at all. Uh, I can talk, if you'd like, about why the, you know, why, what's wrong with these studies, but anybody who's doing a summary study, the way you're describing, who says, well, look, 70, what they, what they claim is 75% do what? Tell me again, please. Um, well, let me rephrase this. Um, they found after, after 20 years, uh, 75% were recovered, and of those uh, 75%, uh, 75% of those were spontaneous remissions. So oh, I see. I didn't understand you. Covered, yes, the vast majority so you're saying covered 75, with no they were, they were, They're just studying a general population with alcoholism. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't understand. I thought you were talking about AA recovery. Um, uh, yeah. No, that's right. There's a lot of spontaneous recovery, uh, and uh, it's it's. <sighs> It's the field is just in terrible shape for the reason I said. Part of the problem also is um, the definition of alcoholism is unclear. It, what I mean by that is uh, there are a lot of people who get included in the description of alcoholism who actually don't have alcoholism. They may be heavy drinkers. Uh, but, you know, these studies are arbitrary. They say, we're going to call the, it a problem if you drink X number of drinks a day or a week, or if you have binges, or if you have social problems. They define it as behaviorally. But that's actually that not an accurate way to do things. Alcoholism is compulsive drinking. It's, it's something that you feel you must do, and you don't have good control over it. It really doesn't have anything to do with the amount that you drink, or when you drink, or what you drink. Uh, and because of that, uh, we often have misdiagnosis. The best example is probably teenagers, uh, where you see kids who are drinking enormous quantities, and obviously it's dangerous for them. But do they have alcoholism? A lot of the time they don't. I mean, they are drinking a lot because their peers are drinking a lot. When they grow up and they have a different set of uh, peers and they have a different perspective on the world, there's no inner drive to to drink. The same was true of in the famous study in the 1970s uh, by Robbins when she looked at soldiers who were taking heroin. You know, a lot of soldiers used a lot of heroin, and they and they they were uh, physically addicted to it. Um, but when they came home, they stopped because they just didn't have an inner drive to do it. There was nothing within them that led them to use heroin as a, a solution to emotional distress. They, once they were out of Vietnam, they just didn't have to use it. So there are a lot of problems with the data. I'm not, but now that I understand what you said, um, yes, people obviously do stop on their own um, without any treatment, and uh, uh, that gets ignored a lot. I mean, that's always the, uh, that's what a treatment has to do, is to prove that it is better than the control group that gets no treatment. And, you know, we do that everywhere else in medicine and science except with addiction. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And that's one of the things we point out in the book. You may, I'm sure you saw that we, we made mm -hmm. that point that, uh, um, uh, that uh, AA, the real control group for AA is people who get no treatment at all, and those folks are doing just as well. But it's not only that. Um, Project Match, the enormous study that was done in the 1990s, which was supposed to resolve these, these questions, showed that none of the treatments they looked at were very effective or maybe even effective at all. 
they all had the same results. Uh, the, the treatments they looked at were AA or, or TSF, which is 12-step facilitation, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, and motivational enhancement therapy. And not only did they all do badly, but they found that the people who did well did well before they got any therapy, that most of the improvement occurred in the first week of treatment. I mean, it was a bizarre result, and that's why you don't hear people talking about it much anymore because it really showed that our current treatments just don't work very well at all. Yeah, I'm uh, writing some uh, criticism right now about Project Match in the 12-step facilitation therapy. I've talked about this before, but the the 12-step facilitation therapy they did with Project Match incorporated really large amounts of relapse prevention from Alan Marlat. It was very harm reduction based. Um, they did not throw people out of treatment for relapsing. And, you know, I was through standard 12-step treatment. They kicked everybody out for relapsing. And if you did relapse, you were back to zero. And, you know, in the manual for the 12-step facilitation therapy for Project Match, they're saying things like, you should value every day that you abstain, whether they're continuous or not. And it's like, this is a total contradiction to what they tell me in AA and normal standard 12-step treatment. So I thought it was just really bizarre that it was so... It was really harm reduction based. Yeah, I, I, right. Uh, and I agree that the, the idea that the AA tally system where you go back to zero if you have even a, a single drink after you've been absent for six months, uh, is, it's, it's actually it's incredibly foolish. It's punitive. Uh, it makes no clinical sense, and it's harmful. And you know, I, I'm sure we have all seen a lot of people who get very uh, uh, discouraged and depressed and furious when they're told that they're back at zero. And a lot of people, of course, go off and start drinking more heavily then because they say, well, what the heck, you know, I'm, I've gotten nowhere. It's, it is. It's terrible and it's moralistic, which a lot of AA is. Uh, I mean, AA is, grew out of the Oxford Group, which was a religious organization. And 25 states have now uh, legally found AA to be a religious organization. Uh, and, you know, there's a huge amount of religion in it, and religion isn't, isn't the problem. The problem is that the way they use it is, is, is it becomes a moral cudgel, and people are, are beaten down, in, not in every meeting, but in many, many meetings. And we, we know about it, and it's part of the system. It's, the tally system is a part of that moralizing. You either do it right or you're no good. Now, there was one study that you looked at in a lot of detail that I want you to talk about, and that is the moose and moose. Uh, this is the one that the 12-step people always pull out as their validation, but there, was, yes. there were a lot of problems with it, and I would like you to... Yeah, that is. We, we look very carefully at that because people do rely on it a lot. And it's... Uh, uh, let, me, let me just mention a few of the problems with it. First of all, of course, it was not a controlled study. And it was not a randomized study. So it, it, it failed the, the usual tests of, of good scientific studies. But let's leave that on, on, on the side. The, the major problems were that they, um, their data was gathered by um, a voluntary self-report. And we all know that that's a very unreliable way to gather data. It's specifically unreliable because people who, if you follow them up after some treatment uh, uh, period and you ask how they're doing, the people who are doing well will tell you. The people who are not doing well won't pick up the phone and call you back 
or they'll, they'll lie because it's very uncomfortable to have to tell people that. And uh, uh, so, so that whole method, without any confirming evidence, urine tests or something, is, is very unreliable. Third thing is their study was supposedly, they said it lasted 16 years. But if you read the paper, what it shows is that they actually looked at little six-month windows at four years, eight years, you know, 16 years, uh, and they acknowledge this, by the way, in the paper. That's, that's how I know about it, because they, they wrote it in the paper. They only looked at, they asked people, say, at 16 years, have you been drinking for the last six months? So all in all, they, even if the answers that they got were accurate, they looked at a total of two years out of 16. The people could have been drinking themselves to death for the other 14 years, and they wouldn't have even had that data. So that's another problem with it. Uh, but let me get now to the biggest problem. And this is true not only of the Moose paper, but of almost every single study of, of alcohol, of uh, AA. They throw out the data that doesn't fit their conclusion. That's a cardinal sin in science. You can't do that. So what, what they actually did was they started out, for example, with a certain number of people in the 16-year study, and they ended up with about, um, they lost, uh, I believe it was 83% of them, dropouts. Now, they acknowledge, and everyone in the research field acknowledges, that the dropouts are the people who did worst. The people who are doing well don't fail to respond. The people who are doing badly drop out, and they drop out actually for a very good reason, because the treatment, the AA treatment, is just not helping them. So we know for a fact that any data, any conclusions you draw from the people who are left are highly biased, and it's actually a kind of a logical error. If you don't take those people into account, which they didn't, um, it's like, let me give you an analogy. Let's say you have somebody who has a new drug for, for uh, pneumonia, and you give people, 100 people with pneumonia this new drug. Now, it turns out that the drug works for 5% of pneumonias, but the rest of them it doesn't do anything for, or it hurts. Okay, you start following people who are on the new pill. After a while, you're left with only five people out of the hundred who are doing well. Those are the people who had the kind of pneumonia that this pill treated. So you look at those five people and you say, we have a 100% success rate. This is a wonderful pill. We've got five people and 100% of them are doing well. You know, it's insane, but that is exactly what the most people did and what most of the people do. They took their, their small group that had finally gotten to 16 years and were doing well, and they said, not only are these people doing well, but they said, this proves that we should encourage people to stay in AA because the people who stay in AA do best. It's circular reasoning of the worst type, if you follow what I'm saying. It's exactly the same as saying, if you keep taking this, this pill, you know, we, we need to encourage you, even if your coughing is getting worse and you're losing weight and you're about to die, keep ta just take more of the pill because the people you know, who stayed with it, did best. So it's backwards reasoning, and the Moose study suffers with it. They, they did tell us that the majority of their people dropped out, but when it came to writing their conclusions, they kind of ignored it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to look at one other aspect of this study that you discussed, and I'm just going to recap it a little for the listeners. The study was following up over a long, many-year period, people who attended AA, uh, versus people who didn't. 
um, alcoholics who attended AA versus alcoholics who didn't. And the idea was to see who did better. But you mentioned something called the compliance effect. And what is that? And why does that taint the study? Well, the compliance effect, and the, the, the best and also funniest example of it, which we describe in the book, was found in a study about the placebo effect. It turned out that if you give people, this was actually done, if you give people a, a sugar pill and then study whether the sugar pill has helped them, by sugar I mean it's just a nothing pill, it turned out that the people who took the pill that had no, nothing in it lived longer than the people who didn't take it. So what that points out is that the pill, of course, didn't make them live longer, but the kind of person who takes advice the kind of person who does what he or she is told, who, who sticks with the program, who says, I will take the pill regularly, those are the people who live longer, but it had nothing to do with the pill. It had to do with the fact that they are the people who comply. These are the people who are the good patients, the good students. These are the, the good Boy Scouts. These are the people who, who follow directions. And because of that, they tend to be healthier in other ways. They exercise, they eat a good diet, they do lots of things that people recommend, so they live longer. But if you looked at the placebo study, you'd assume that it was, it was the placebo that, that, that did it. So that's the compliance effect, and it applies to addiction because, again, if you look at the people who stay with the program, who, uh, uh, you're, you're getting people who are simply different in other ways from the people who won't stay with the program. So there, that's one kind of what we call scientific, scientifically as a bias. You have, you're not looking at the general population. You're looking at a subpopulation who voluntarily selects to come into the, into the program. And those people are simply different, which is true. They're different because they can maybe make use of the camaraderie in AA, but 90% of the people can't cure an addiction through camaraderie. So there's, there's, there's that kind of, uh, kind of bias. And then there's also something called selection bias, which almost all the studies have, and that has to do with taking people to see whether AA works, taking people into the study who are uh, previously selected for already being oriented toward AA, and there's quite a bit of that going on too. One of the studies uh, didn't bother to emphasize that everybody that they were studying had already been through a, an inpatient AA-oriented program, and those are the only people that they looked at. So there are a lot of kinds of bias in, in these studies. So, uh, you know, we could have told people to play tiddlywinks for an hour every day, and we would have seen the same compliance effect of people that followed doctor's orders did better. Yeah, I mean, that's not the whole answer, but it, it is an effect. It is one of the things that, that, that happens. Um, that and the, uh, you know, the, the, the logical... The circular reasoning that if, that if the people who stay longest do best means that AA is working, is, is, it's just logically uh, nonsensical. The people who stay longest and are doing best are doing best. It says absolutely nothing about the people who didn't stay because they couldn't make use of it. Um, so now we come to the other question, which is why uh, has the medical field adopted as a standard treatment the uh, program that has no scientific validity or backing behind it. How did you yeah. It? yeah. Well, we talk some about the history of this in the book. Um, it's, it's a very sad story. 
In the 1930s, when uh, AA began uh, and uh, the big book was published, all of the uh, people in medicine, the American Medical Association, other publications, uh, just said, this is utter garbage. It's ridiculous. Don't tell us that alcoholism is a spiritual disease. I mean, it's, it's, that, this is just useless. But by eight or nine or ten years later, they had reversed themselves. When you, by the time you get to the middle 1940s, they're all saying AA is the cure. It's the answer. And yet, between the 30s and the 40s, there was absolutely no scientific evidence for it. There was no change in anything, uh, but the view of it changed. And that happened because of it's basically political. I mean, people, they, Marty Mann, who was a, 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 a person with many connections to high uh, institutions in the country, and Bill Wilson, of course, who was a master marketer, um, got help from a lot of people. The Rockefeller Foundation helped to publish, uh, not the foundation, the Rockefeller family helped to publish, to get money to publish uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And once they got going and once they started proselytizing, the people doing the best uh, talking about it and getting into into important positions, it was self-perpetuating. So without any scientific backing, um, it became the de facto treatment. And to this day, um, I don't know about every state, but I, I know that certainly in many states, if you go to the addiction portion of the state health uh, department, you'll find it's, it's filled with AA people. And you'll find that in, in lots of other places, uh, too, including professional organizations. So, you know, once it's there, it's hard to dislodge. And that's partly why we wrote the book, because... People just don't know the facts, and the facts, you know, what you hear from everybody is it worked for me, so don't talk to me. I don't want to listen to you, and that's not that's not good science or good public health. Yeah, the problem is um, testimonial evidence, and AA is very good at generating testimonials, but the thing that generates the most testimonials is not necessarily the most effective medication or treatment. Well, that's right. That's the sampling error. We hear from the people who do well, and we don't hear from the people who don't. So, uh, and you know, the media is is complicit in this. Uh, you know, how many times do we hear about on simply on drama shows? The answer to the problem is to go to AA. Uh, I, there have been a million of these, but um, the one that stands out for me because I was a big fan is NYPD Blue, which is now off the air. But you know. Uh, the main character was an alcoholic, and you know he finally goes to meetings, and they show it in the in the show, and and he gets sober. You know, you see enough of that stuff, you think it's just true, and you know, part. Of, I have to tell you that before we wrote this book, this book arose partly out of a conversation I had with somebody when I casually mentioned that I, being in the field, I knew that AA had a five to ten percent success rate, and this person looked at me and said, "What?" That that can't be true, and I said, "Oh, sure, it's true. It's it's pretty widely known." And he said, "Nobody knows that." And I said, "Everybody knows it." He said, "No, you're wrong. You know it because you're in the field, but nobody knows it." And I've discovered he he was right. And and again, the media is constantly um, saying it. In, in fact, the response to our book, "The Sober Truth," has been interesting. People uh, have been starting out asking me not about what we find, but saying things like. So is there really anything wrong with AA? 
or or are you, are you questioning that AA is you know is is the right thing or the best thing for alcoholics? They start out with the idea that it it is. We all believe this myth to begin with, and it's very hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, once again, I was. This is just on the top of my head, so I'm going to say it. You know, the, the the medication that gets the most testimonials isn't always the best one. If you go back to the days before the FDA of patent medicines, I mean, people loved tincture of opium. Opium dissolved in alcohol. People loved it. They gave testimonials for it all the time. It didn't really yeah. cure anything, but it made them yeah. feel really good. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, radiation therapy, chemotherapy for cancer... It's not so pleasant. People don't really like that so much, even though now we we kind of know it's necessary. But yes. the testimonials are completely unreliable. Yes, they don't mean any more than what they mean, and sometimes they're they're actually not true. I mean, people, you know, people regularly say that they have, are doing better than than they are because, and that's also, you know, I know from many people in AA that they are aware that some of the old timers there in order to maintain their standing in the group, simply lie. They don't talk about the when they've had a drink. Not all of them, of course. But, you know, if they were to admit it, then they would lose the standing as the wise old men. Now we get to the next question, which is, if AA is not the right way to treat addiction, what is the right way? What is effective? What works? Yeah, well, we have a chapter devoted to that, and of course, I wrote two other books about it. Uh, the the thing that I always want to say before I even answer the question, and because it's otherwise it gets mixed up. The thing I want to say is, let's say I had no other ideas. I do, but let's say I don't. It wouldn't matter. The thrust of our book is that people have to know the facts about twelve steps and the twelve step programs and the rehabs because they're harming 90% of the people, or at least a very large number of, of people, we're doing the wrong thing. And even if we had nothing else available, we still sh- need to change. Because, again, the 90% who don't do well are not just neutral. They're being harmed by being, by being told that they have failed. So even if there was nothing else, it's better to refer to nobody than to refer to AA for the 90% of the people who who don't uh, who can't make use of it? I know that sounds crazy, but the the truth is that if you can't make use of it, it's, it's like saying if you to use my pneumonia analogy, it's like if if you have no medicine for this particular kind of pneumonia, you've got penicillin, but it happens to be the kind of pneumonia that penicillin doesn't touch. Should you still give the penicillin? Well, no. Better to give palliative care, better to just try to make people comfortable. There's no point in giving a medicine that doesn't work, but that's what we're doing. But to get back to your question, what I've been, my, most of my clinical research over the past 25 years has been in understanding addiction psychologically. And uh, I wrote The Heart of Addiction and then Breaking Addiction to let people know about these ideas. I'd already published them in academic journals, but to let people know about them and to help people to do some self-treatment. Because even though working out any psychological issue is a big deal and can't be done quickly or easily, it turns out if you understand the psychology of how the symptom of addiction works, you can really make some good progress on your own 
and then it doesn't hurt to see a good therapist. So, you know, what I just to briefly summarize it, what I found is that addictive acts are never random. Uh, they are always precipitated by something that's emotionally important. People don't drink for nothing. They drink because something has upset them. Uh, and that being the case, naturally, I became interested in what upsets people so much that they have this compulsive need to drink. And what I found is that although everybody is different, everybody feels a kind of overwhelming helplessness at the point that they decide to take a drink or place a bed or whatever the addiction is. And that kind of helplessness is um, so severe. It's like I always use the analogy of being trapped in a cave-in. It's so severe, you're so desperate to get out that you will do anything to not feel helpless. And that's not, that's not a problem. That's actually a normal reaction. If, if you were uh, trapped in a cave, you'd, you'd start pounding at the rocks. You'd do whatever you could to get out. Even if you broke your wrist doing it, the long-term consequences of pounding on the rocks don't matter at that moment. What's essential is that you not be trapped and helpless. So that's the kind of feeling that I've found is at that moment. So what people do then is they have to do something. And the something that they do could be a direct appropriate action. But in addiction, it's never a direct appropriate action. The something that they do is another behavior which we call the addiction. For example, if a man is in his car, let's say he has alcoholism, and let's also say he hasn't had a drink for six months, he's driving along, and now another car comes over and swerves and cuts him off. He becomes enraged at this because, it, you know, for personal reasons of his own, he, it's an attack on his masculinity. But since he has alcoholism, what he does is he says, I'm go he gets he's furious and he t pulls off the road and he goes into a bar and starts drinking. So what he's doing, what all people with addictions are doing at the moment they decide to do their addictive act, is they're re-empowering themselves. They're reversing their helplessness. Instead of being helpless, this guy says, there's nothing I can do. The guy sped off. I can't stand this. I'm trapped here. I'm stuck in my car. You know, this person, this happened to me. It's terrible. But I'm not helpless now. I can go get a drink. And the moment of making that decision, most people get calmer, which is an important point. I mean, we see people, for example, I used to see when I lived in the East Coast, I would see people who had compulsive gambling. At the moment they decided to go to the casino, they were okay. And it took two hours to get to the casino where we were in Boston. But they were fine. They got calmer because at that point they had solved the problem. They were no longer helpless. Now, obviously, people get more helpless when they do addictions. But in the short term, it's a solution. It's a way to reverse helplessness. So addictions, in, instead of, to, to use the man in the, in the car again, let's say he got furious and instead of doing what he did do, he sped up and he got right behind the other car and he copied down the license plate number and he made a plan right then he was going to go report this car and, and so forth. Well, if he had done that, he might not have had a drink. Why? Because he had done something direct. Yes, he had been helpless, but now he had done something that actually dealt with the helplessness. But when you do another action, a substitute action like drink or place a bed, that's called a displacement in psychology. So all addictions are displaced activities. That's why they seem so irrational. 
they're things that you do because you have to do something to reverse the helplessness, but they're not a direct response. So having uh, learned this, I found that if you talk to people about it, you get them to pay attention to that key moment in addiction, not, not the addictive act itself. It's never the addictive act. It's before the addictive act. It's that moment when they decide to do it. You pay attention to that moment, and then you look backwards from there. You see what was so overwhelming for you. If you do that, you'll eventually learn what kind of thing makes you feel so overwhelmed. And once you learn that, now you're in a position where you can predict your next addictive urge, which usually people can't do. I mean, I have people who I've seen who tell me, they can say to me, look, it's now uh, it's Thursday. I know I'm going to feel like drinking. I'm going to feel the urge to drink next Wednesday at 3 o'clock. It sounds like magic, right? But they know what's coming up in their lives, and they know what that kind of thing makes them feel. So with that kind of advanced notice, they have all sorts of options that they never had before, including, and best of all, the option to think about what's going on. If it's something they can do something about directly, to do it. In some cases, it's just a matter, as in one woman's case, of deciding not to do something that she thought she had to do. She, you know, she, she, she always felt she had to attend these social gatherings, which she hated. Well, you know, what if she doesn't attend it? That's hard for her because of who she is. But once you know what's going to predict, what's going to uh, uh, trigger your addictive urge, uh, you're in a great position to do something about it. And then in the long term, you can figure out what makes this kind of thing so overwhelming for you. Everybody is different. But... Whatever that thing that is so overwhelmingly, makes you feel so overwhelmingly trapped that leads to an addiction, whatever that thing is, it's always also the same thing that bothers you for the rest of, in the rest of your life. Addictions don't sit in isolation. The things that set them off are the same things that bother people in their lives in general. So uh, there are quicker ways to get to understanding and managing your addiction. You don't have to have a whole psychotherapy but often people want to continue and try to get deeper into why they feel so helpless and they end up in a uh, in a treatment with some good therapist for a while to figure that out. So that's a long answer. So that's how I understand it. But, you know, that probably is not for everybody. I'm not like AA. I don't say, you know, do it my way or you're not doing it right. I'm always right. But it's it's been very helpful to a lot of people, and it's it's an alternative. It makes it makes sense to me uh, because so many people can make use of it, and it makes sense logically. You know, addictive acts are compulsions. They're they're things you feel you have to do, and they really don't have anything to do with drugs primarily because we know that because people can switch from drug addictions to non-drug addictions like gambling or shopping, uh, and they go back and forth. So it isn't the drug that's so important really. It's the thing that drives you to it and. When people can learn about that in themselves, they're they're in a great position. Yeah, I agree. It's really common. I mean, people use drugs or other addictions as a coping mechanism because they work in the short term. They have right. lots of problems in the long term. They work short term. And so when people start figuring out alternative coping strategies that you know can work better and have fewer long-term consequences, you know, that leads them on a path to getting better. Yeah, and, and also they can learn something about themselves. 
I mean, my man, I mean, I made that case up, but I have a million real cases in in both of my first two books, uh, and also in The Sober Truth, we have some cases too. Um, but to use the man in the in the car, you know, he might stop and think, well, you know, what made me so upset about the guy cutting me off? That would be useful for him to figure out, because this isn't the only time in his life that he's felt cut down, or, or as though he's been, he's been uh, his masculinity has been challenged. I mean, it happens a lot to him, and you know, it'd be worthwhile to, to spend some time figuring himself out so that didn't keep bothering him. Now, there's a lot of AA apologists that will say, well, it couldn't ever hurt anybody to send them uh, to send someone to an AA meeting. It might be good for them even if they don't have an addiction, so everyone should get sent. In fact, if you go <laughs> to meetings, you used to, you used to hear things like, uh, isn't it too bad that normal people don't have a wonderful program like this? Well, my own yeah. story is while I was attending AA, my drinking increased to the point of, um, well, I was abstaining when I started going to AA. When I left, I was drinking a liter of whiskey a day, and I needed yep. to be medically detoxed so that I did not die, and that's when I decided to leave. But what's your experience? Are people harmed by AA? Yes, there's no question about that. And, um, of course, those of us who are not in AA but are uh, therapists, you know, we're we're catching all the people who are um, who are being failed by AA and are going downhill. Uh, oh, sure, sure. And you know, one of the chapters in the sober truth in, in the book is uh, our our accounts. Uh, we have ten accounts of people which we did not edit. They just sent it, sent in. We just asked for people to send in their experience with both AA and rehab, um, and uh, to send in both positive and negative experiences. And, and the experiences are both positive and negative, but a lot of these people describe exactly exactly that. They went to AA, and it made them so much worse because if they couldn't make use of it, they felt bad, they were failing. And they talk about the many people that they saw who felt that they had to keep going because it was the right thing to do, but were getting worse and worse, the way, sort of way you just, like the way you just described. And a couple of these folks uh, talked about suicides they had seen, and we know that that's true, too, that people who are in AA and not doing well, um, since they think AA is the only thing that they should be doing and the only thing that's available to them, now they really are desperate because now there's no hope. Um, so, uh, yes, AA certainly harms people. That doesn't mean it doesn't help uh, you know, the small group that it helps. I'm not saying that at all. And again, I just want to repeat: if people are in, are hearing this, and they're in AA, and they're getting, and they're getting a lot out of it, I say, great, keep going. But um, certainly, is harmful to the majority. Well, yeah, you know, if people go to AA by their own choice, if they like it, uh, what, who am I to stop them? It, it's really like religion. It's like going to church. If you like to go to the Catholic Church, or if you like to be Jewish, go to the synagogue. You know, it's your choice. If you if you like to be an atheist and don't want to believe any of these things, that's your choice too. We should protect people's freedom of religion, freedom of belief. If you like AA and find it beneficial, go ahead, go for it. Absolutely, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that and the religious analogy, of course, is very good with all the proselytizing and the certainty that we are we are right. You know, by the way, just speaking of that, you know, can you think of any other organization or treatment 
uh, that's involved with public health that has been unchanged since the 1930s. I mean, the, the, the arrogance of saying we, got, we figured it out in the 30s and we don't need to change it. Wow, you know, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's just not science. I mean, uh, yeah. if you start looking at the theology of AA, it's, uh, everyone with alcoholism died of alcoholism before Bill got the truth from God, and then, you know, everybody could be cured if only they worked the program. And it was their fault right. that they didn't work the program. Right, right. That's the, right. It's crazy. And, you know, it, it, there are some very fundamentalist uh, religious groups that also say precisely the same thing. You know, go with us or go to hell. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. You know, when I was in, living in Japan, uh, the friend of mine that was trying to get me involved with something called uh, Mahikari, which uh, they heal people by shooting divine light out of their hands. And they would always tell me, but we're not a religion, which is shukyo in Japanese. They would say, we are sukyo. We are a venerable teaching, not a religion. It's like, we're spiritual, not religious. And I just said, right. well, no. Right, well, that's why, so, it's, right, it's, that's why it's nice to remember that 25 states have rejected that argument and said this is a religious organization, and therefore courts cannot mandate you to go to AA because that's against the Constitution and religious freedom. Um, Although they still do it, of course, there are courts that do send people to AA, which is it's a, it's unconstitutional. It's also kind of a malpractice. It's a medical malpractice by judges. Yeah, people are not people are not aware of their rights. People aren't aware that if the judge says go to AA, that they can reply, uh, "Wait, you need to give me a secular alternative." That's right. And these days, unless unless you actually speak up when you're getting sentenced, the judge most in most cases. They don't say anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, some of these judges are in AA. I mean, you know, I mean, we. It's. I don't want to be a, cons- a conspiracy theorist, but it's a fact that you know it's an anonymous organization. There are quite a few people who are in AA, and once once they're in it, no matter what their field, they're biased. You know, I mean, I had for for our book, for for example, I mean. We have a wonderful publisher in Beacon Press. They're just terrific. And they publish, they're a very honorable uh, uh, publishing company that they, they want to do important work. Um, but before we got to Beacon Press, there was, there was one publishing company that wouldn't consider publishing it because the, the guy said, he said, I'm an AA, I'm not going to publish this. You know? Well, fortunately, he's not the only publisher in the world. But what if he were? I mean, there's no interest in, in openness or scientific inquiry or being, you know, willing to consider other ideas. It's, 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 you know, it makes it very difficult to have an open, honest, thoughtful discussion about addiction treatment uh, in this country. I mean, it, we all know what happens if you try to uh, criticize AA to someone who's a, a lifelong AA member. You know, you get your head bitten off. And, and that's that's very unfortunate. Well, it's really uh, heartening to see that um, a major publisher has published this book uh, from you, who have uh, excellent credentials, being from Harvard, uh, all those years at Harvard. Because um, you know, to 
10, 20 years ago, well, they were books of AA criticism published, but they were from mm-hmm. small presses like C-Sharp Press. Um, mm-hmm. you know, people didn't have such big credentials. You know, uh, Ken Rage, Charles Buff, and several people uh, published uh, AA criticism, but it really didn't... Uh, it, it didn't have such impact, but now to, that we have this book from a uh, a really uh, well-credentialed author from a major publisher that is actually questioning these things, I think that's really an important step that we've made forward. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I mean, you know, it's hard to change systems, but uh, I, I hope that uh, our our book, if people look at it closely, I hope that that will help them to think about things differently um you know it will require a lot of effort from a lot of people uh because uh, you know the, that's where the power lies there was i give you another example i just um there was a, a piece that came out about our book in a uh, uh what was it exactly it was a newspaper in minnesota so while they were in minnesota they had the ceo of hazelden treatment center there to offer a kind of different view because we, you know, we we are the statistics for these rehabs are just atrocious, and and I think I mentioned, you know, what they offer is is a lot of nonsensical treatment, like being around horses. Um, so what he said was he sort of he shrugged it off. He said, oh yes, every few years there's somebody who comes by and says AA is is not good. He didn't care, you know. Hazelden is expanding, if anything, as as you may know, they just bought out Betty Ford. You know they're 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 happy as clams. The fact that their treatment is is you know unsupportable doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't think that the I don't think that this is going to last. I see too many people out there in the field who have their eyes open now. Um, you know, it used to be ninety nine percent of uh, rehabs were twelve step. Now it's down to like ninety. Um, yeah, that's a big change. I agree. And I, I talk to lots of people online, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, various places, who are substance abuse counselors, professionals in the field, and they're saying, you know, I've really changed my approach and outlook because, you know, I've had to adopt harm reduction, smart recovery, cognitive behavioral therapy, things that work because I just got too tired of uh, pushing the 12 steps on everybody when they only spent 5%. Yeah, well, that's that's good that that is happening. That is good. Uh, you know, it would be nice if the general public caught up, but, you know, when you have people like these these rehabs, and, they, you know, they're, these are wealthy institutions, so they have a lot of power to influence people. And, and when you have them consistently saying, we're a 12-step program and we work, they claim they make these claims without any they have no data they don't even study their own outcomes actually we discovered but they just say whatever they want it's an unregulated industry so when you have all that the advertising come to our beautiful program and you know which is 12 step based people presume how could you charge $90,000 a month for a program unless it was good you know <laughs> You, you can understand. I mean, if I weren't in the field, I'd probably believe it too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's going to catch up with them, and uh, uh, maybe not too much longer. You know, we now have the uh, the Parity Act of uh, mental health and substance abuse treatment. There are going to be yep. federal dollars pouring into this. There's going to need to be regulation. There's going to be need to be some evidence, 
And there's a lot of people out there that are unhappy, and they are raising their voice and saying, you know, we are not going to support these things. You know, my child went to rehab and died of a heroin overdose. My child was sober living and died of a heroin overdose. You know, what the hell are you doing? Um, You know, this this is all backlash is coming. Well, I agree. I think there has been more and more, and I I think you're right. You know, I I am a little bit uh, cynical, but... You know, I can I can be convinced, and certainly we wrote our book in the hopes that it would it would make some changes. Um, uh, you know, I, I hope that happens. I think the coming decade we're going to see a lot. You know, it might, it's not going to be next year, but you know, within the next ten years, I think that things are going to be shaking up a lot, and I think this, that your book is going to be one of the things that really helps contribute to opening up people's eyes. I sure hope so. I mean, we, you know, we hope it'll have a very practical effect too, so that people who have uh, family members or or themselves who are thinking about, for example, going into a rehab, um, I hope it opens their eyes so that they don't go through the the horror of spending their life savings for treatment that is going to fail, uh, and and everybody's going to feel worse about the poor person who's suffering with the addiction who isn't doing well. You know, that has happened too many times. Uh, And, you know, sometimes, as we we talk about this in the book, sometimes a hospitalization is not a a bad idea. Sometimes you need a break. And, of course, sometimes people need to be detoxed. But a really, uh, you could make a really, a a rehab that is better than anything that's out there, or at least better than all these 12-step rehabs, for much less money. I mean, you could eliminate the horse therapy and you could eliminate the yachts and, and, you know, you could eliminate the gourmet food, just have ordinary, perfectly fine food and all the rest of the nonsense that goes on there. And you could help people to, uh, uh, to get toward the top of where they need to be. You're not going to cure anybody in 30 days. But, you know, you could help people a great deal for a lot less money. It will be more available to everybody. And, of course, harm reduction is essential because the whole idea that you know you're a failure if you're not completely abstinent is is just it's ridiculous and and dangerous well one of the things that is really heartening to me is in new york state now uh they are teaching overdose prevention training in rehab to people who are going to graduate they're teaching them about narcan where to get it how to use it um, and the uh, OSS-run, the state-run rehabs, are all planning to uh, implement uh, overdose prevention training as a standard uh, within the next year or so. So, uh, well, that's you know, great. That's it's, great. It's it's great. Um, New York State is uh, starting to realize that harm reduction is an essential part of addiction treatment. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it, it also fits with uh, the. Uh, some of the uh, ideas that I've been talking about for years in terms of treating people in psychotherapy. Uh, you know, when people have the idea that it's black or white, then, I mean, I've had this experience many times. You have somebody who's in a therapy, is learning about himself, is getting better, is gradually decreasing the uh, amount that he's drinking, let's say. And the family says, you know, you're no good as a therapist. This person is still drinking. And you say, well, look, we're, we're working on it. It's getting better. And they believe, because of the AA credo, that if you're still drinking and you're being 
still being seen in, in some treatment that the treatment is a failure. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people are going to recover from their addiction, and they will still, they might drink moderately, non-problematically. They might use some marijuana now and then. Maybe they kicked heroin. Maybe they stopped getting drunk uh, six nights out of the week. But, uh, you know, some people still do use some substances, but they're not addicted anymore. Well, that's right. That, I, I, that's, that's, that's completely right. And, and even if it were a problem, I mean, I, I'm just saying what you've always said, that, you know, reducing the harm from it is a major achievement. I mean, you can't, you can't okay. knock that. You can't say it's not good enough. It's a major achievement to reduce the harm. Absolutely. Well, we are running out of time, so what would you like to leave us with this evening? Um, well, I guess uh, I, I, I would like people to, to be as thoughtful as possible about uh, what they're going to do, either for themselves or for loved ones, or if they are in the position to refer, to be very thoughtful about doing that. What we really should be doing in this country is have some sort of triage system. We need to just not blindly refer. People should be evaluated by somebody competent to talk to them. If they look like they are the sort of person who would make use of AA, fine. Have them go to AA and tell them to, you know, uh, see if they can get something out of it, but not to be bullied into taking everything or or to feeling that they're a failure if they, you know, if they uh, have a slip. Um, But part of the triage would be, a lot of the triage would be to triage people away from AA. Uh, because it's so harmful, and, and we know it's not going to work for a lot of people. One way to do the triage, I think, is to simply listen to people. There are a lot of people who will say, I don't like, I don't like the religiosity, I don't like the, the moralizing in it, there are all sorts of things that I don't like about it. And instead of trying to talk them into going, you know, it's like TSF, <laughs> 12-step facilitation, which is trying to get you to go, that's the, that's the worst thing we should do. We should listen to them. We should say, okay, it's not for you. Don't go. For God's sake, don't go. Don't spend the next 10 years of your life going in and out of the rooms, getting nothing out of it. Um, so I just hope that people will, will read the book, see what the numbers are, see the statistics, see what the studies really show, what they don't show. Uh, take a look at what we found about the rehabs and, and what goes on there. Listen to the stories of the people we have in the book. And, you know, just make a careful, considered a, a choice about what they want to do for people. Okay. Thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. Lance Dodis. Thank you very much. We'll see you all next week, everyone. Bye.